If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3. Peter Cartwright was a Methodist preacher in this country during the 1800s. And in October of 1818, he was filling the pulpit for a minister one Sunday in New Orleans during a revival service. Just as the text for the sermon that day was being read, Andrew Jackson walked into the service and not finding any place to sit, stood against one of the pillars toward the back. At that point, Andrew Jackson was not yet president, but General Jackson, having reached national fame for his victory at the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812. When the host pastor saw the celebrity general, he became very nervous and excited and began pulling on the preaching robe of the man that was filling the pulpit that day, saying to Cartwright, General Jackson has come in, General Jackson has come in. The text that was read and was about to be preached was Mark 8:36. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And Cartwright says in his autobiography that he felt like the pastor was displaying a double standard, wanting him to make sure the famous general was not offended. And so he says, quote, I felt a flash of indignation run all over me like an electric shock, and facing about to my congregation, and purposely speaking out audibly, I said, Who is General Jackson? If he don't get his soul converted, God will damn him as quick as he would anybody else. He goes on to say the preacher tucked his head down and squatted low and would no doubt have been thankful for leave of absence. As a preacher, Cartwright feared God more than he feared man. And that attitude of preacher and preaching prepares us for what we will see this morning through the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. We should remember what we have already seen, namely that John's birth was promised to an older couple who were unable to have children. He was promised as a prophet who would be filled with God's spirit even from birth and make ready the people of God for the Lord's coming. John was the one promised to bridge the gap between old covenant promise and new covenant fulfillment. He was the last of the old prophets who would point forward to the Messiah When he came, we've seen his birth and now we want to see his ministry as God fulfills the promise he made. Follow along as I begin reading in verse one of Luke chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachetinus and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. In this passage, we see John receiving the word of God to be preached to the people of God. And we see here not only the effects of that word preached in John's day as part of the redemptive purposes that God is bringing about in the world, but we also see the effects of the word as a pattern even for us today. Specifically, we see the way that God's word works in the world and in our lives. And we see three central ways. First of all, we see that God's word displays true power. God's word displays true power. First, we see this by way of contrast. We see the failure of political power. The failure of political power. Luke begins by telling us the word of God came to John in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Itaria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. Now I know for most of you hearing those names is absolutely fascinating and you are overjoyed at this history lesson. No, I know that's not true. In fact, it's probably the opposite, but don't write this verse off too quickly. First of all, it roots Luke's writing in history. We've said this before. But it's important that we make this point over and over and over again. All of these people he mentioned really lived and really ruled in their various spheres of responsibility. And that truth, that reality reinforces the trustworthiness of Luke as a historian to tell us what really happens. So when he's telling us about just people coming and going and, and going about their day, it's one thing. But the minute he begins talking about miracles and supernatural events and a man who is dead rising from the grave, we might be tempted to say, well, I'm not so sure. But if he lays the groundwork by telling us, look, this is really history, this has really happened, we're going to see him as a reliable eyewitness of the fact that Jesus really was the Christ who really died in the atonement for sin and raised back from the dead. Luke's gospel is historically reliable. And on this point, it's interesting to note that previously, liberal scholars who said that Luke was not a reliable historical source saw the mention of Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, as a problem for Luke. For there was a Lysania who ruled in Abilene, but it was 60 years earlier than this. And so they said, see, Luke got the name right, but he got the date wrong. However, since those days, historians have uncovered ancient inscriptions, and guess what they show? A second Lysanias, probably a descendant of the first, who also ruled in Abilene at the same time that Luke says he does. Again, history proves that Luke himself is a good historian. Friends, it's important that we understand these are not fairy stories or legends or myths made up by men to advance their religious views in the world. These events happened just as much as the events on last night's news happened, as much as you had whatever you had for breakfast this morning. 
The Gospel of Luke tells us true events that happen in a real world. And here it is, real men in real history who wielded real power, yet ultimately came to nothing. If we were to go back and study out the history of these men, we would see a Roman world filled with violence and pride and self-indulgence and political maneuvering. Sadly, that sounds too much like our own government today. Yet where are these men today? Where is their legacy? Buried away in the footnotes of history. If not for the Bible's pervasive influence, would we even know the names of some of these men like Pontius Pilate, let alone anything about them? For all their power in the end, they were powerless. History ran its course. These men died or were killed, and they were ultimately replaced by somebody else. We see the failure of political power, but we also see, in contrast to the power of God's word, the failure of religious power. The failure of religious power. Luke says it was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Here we see that even the priesthood in Israel was not uncontaminated by the political corruptions in Rome. For at this time, contrary to God's word, Rome actually dictated who the high priest would be in Israel. And notice Luke only mentions one high priesthood, but the names of two high priests. What's going on here? Well, the Bible only allows for one high priest in Israel. And we know from history that Anna served from 6 to 15 AD, not during this time. But we also know that Anna's son-in-law, Caiaphas, was appointed as high priest. And what we know from the writings of Josephus and others that Luke is suggesting that though there is one man in the position of religious authority in Israel, there are actually two. Though Caiaphas is the face of the position, Annas is lurking behind the scenes, pulling his strings like a marionette. Rather than shepherding the people of God then, it was all political games. It's no surprise that in the midst of these things, we read that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So you would expect God's word to come to those in spiritual leadership, to the religious leaders. But Luke is signaling to us what we know from history, that they are false shepherds. Politically, religiously, this was a dark time in Israel. Yet God has prepared his man. God has prepared his prophet to receive his word. And that was none other than John the Baptist. What we see is that though the political leaders have failed to bring justice and mercy to society as they should, and though the religious leaders in Israel have failed to bring godliness and faithfulness to Israel as they should, now God will reveal the true source of power for change. Power that comes from His mighty, saving, redeeming Word. And just like the great prophets of the Old Covenant, men like Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and more, God now sends his word to John. Not a man involved in the political gears of society nor a man in the religious leadership of the day. No, the word was given to John, a man who comes walking out of the wilderness. Why? To make clear this man belongs to no one but God himself. Why has he come? Why has the word come to this man? To prepare God's people for God's own coming. And what does the word do to prepare the people? Luke says, secondly, that God's word confronts cherished idols. God's word confronts cherished idols. 
Luke says that John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's preaching was the fulfillment of the, of the vision given to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40 of that book. The verses that Luke quotes here. And the imagery is the custom of the ancient world. When you had uh, a famous ruler or uh, a dignitary coming to visit a city, they would make ready his way. So you can imagine if even today President Obama said, uh, I'm coming to visit Bay City, Michigan, uh, all the stops will be pulled out, right? The streets would be cleaned, uh, places would be blocked off from traffic so that he could come right down the interstate or, or fly in. Air Force One and MBS, how cool would that be, right? Uh, but uh, everything would come right in and there would be right to the, the, the city hall where he would make a speech, maybe visit some people, and then off he would go. And likewise, the ancient equivalent of that was sometimes building a better road. It was sometimes fixing a road that might wind around and, and be through rocky places, and they would straighten it out, they would smooth it out. So when he came in, all with all of his armies and all of his uh, courtiers and all these other things, there would be the full ability to have the pomp and circumstance and the grandeur of his position. But notice the vision of God's coming is far grander even than that. Here is a super highway being laid down, the likes of which has never been seen. Here entire mountains are leveled, whole valleys are filled up. There is no winding paths or bumpy patches. There is a direct and expansive way being prepared for the coming of the Lord. Why? Because all flesh will see his salvation. This is the reason John has come. The lives of the people are like the terrain in need of bulldozing and construction. They are twisted and they are craggy with moral lows and peaks of sin because of the state of their hearts before God. Therefore, John has come as the great leveler. He has come to make them ready for the coming of God who will come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the process, like the prophets of old, in order to make the people ready for the Lord's coming, he brings down the idols before their eyes. Two specific idols we see being brought down in these verses. First of all, we see the idol of empty religion. We see the idol of empty religion. Let me say right now that very often in popular uh, Christian circles on the internet and in books, the word religion is used like a dirty word, almost as an antithesis to Christianity. So you'll find people saying things like, I'm not religious, but I love Jesus. And I get what they're saying. I get what they're saying because John's actually saying the same thing. But we are mistaken if we see the word religion as inherently bad. For the Bible itself uses religion as a good thing. The James says in his letter uh, what real, true, pure, undefiled religion looks like. And so religion as a concept, as a word, is not bad. The question is, what kind of religion is it? This is why I've clarified and said empty religion is the idol that John knocks down. Empty religion is big on forms and traditions and little on changed lives and godliness. And it's in that sense of empty religion that John is calling out here. Notice what it says, that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was common enough in the day, but not in the way that he did it. 
Baptism was only reserved for pagan Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. It was a symbolic thing of them being cleansed from their pagan Gentile lifestyle and coming into the covenant community of Israel. Therefore, no good Jew ever needed to be baptized. But here is John preaching to his own people saying, you need to come out here to me and you need to be baptized. Practicing your religious traditions isn't enough. You can't trust in the religious forms of a relationship with God and not have a real relationship with God. So you have all these people who are thinking, I'm okay with God. I, you know, why do I need to be baptized? He says, no, no, no. He says, you don't understand. He says, you're not okay with God. Just because you go to the temple and you offer sacrifices and you think you're right with God because you're involved in some traditions, that doesn't mean you really know God. That doesn't mean that he really knows you. And so he begins to topple the idol of empty religion. But he also topples the idol of pride. He also topples the idol of pride. The crowds come out to him to be baptized. And what does he say? He's been saying, come and be baptized. Get ready for the Lord's coming. Then they actually come out. And what does he say to them? We're glad you came. We hope you have a good time. No. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath of co- to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able to take these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John had been in the wilderness for years and had not had a chance to read all the books on church growth or how to win friends and influence people. He didn't know this wasn't the way you're supposed to speak. I mean, calling somebody a snake in any culture probably isn't good. Except maybe China with the new year. I think it's the year of the snake. Maybe that. Maybe maybe this is where they should start with their preaching. I don't know. But ultimately, John doesn't care whether he offends them or not. Just the opposite. He's been given God's word. And what John wants is not a people who presume to be the people of God who are a fake and hollow people of God. He wants people who are truly people who love the Lord their God and not just themselves. And he's not just being harsh and calling them a snake. In John's day, when you burn off a big pile of brush, the one thing that you would almost invariably see are snakes who feel the heat and are scurrying out from the brush where they had lived to escape destruction by the fire. And what he's saying is, don't just come out here because you want, to, you, want to, you want to be seen as godly. Don't just come out here to put on a show as if you're thinking, well, I, I want to escape the, the, the wrath, whether of public opinion or of God. No, you need to come, and you need to come in such a way that you expect to be changed. That you leave this place not the same as you were before. John says, enough of the arrogance about wanting to put on a show. He says, don't come down here and be baptized unless you expect God to do something in your life. He points out that many of these people had pride in their heritage. They trusted that because Abraham was their father, they would be right before God. They were children of Abraham, children of promise. John says, that means nothing apart from faith. That means nothing apart from faith. God can take these rocks and make children for Abraham. Or as we will find out very soon, Gentiles and make children of Abraham. He says, your pride and your ethnicity means nothing when it comes to your salvation. And he goes even further, doesn't he? He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's often the imagery of the olive tree for Israel being the people of God. And what what they're being told is, if you're not bearing the fruit of God's people as you should, 
then God's acts of judgment is already chopping down at your root and you are about to be broken down and tossed into the fire of God's judgment. It's frankly a shocking message for the people to hear. John was preaching against the very things that they cherished, their pride, their empty religion. But the irony is the things that they were clinging to were the very things that were keeping them far from God. And the reality is we have to ask ourselves, are we that much different from them? What kind of idols do we have that are keeping us from God? Maybe they're keeping us from being fruitful disciples. Maybe they're keeping us from coming to Christ at all. What idols are in your life? What are you, what do you think about the most that you believe, I couldn't live without this. If this was taken away, I couldn't carry on with life. What do you talk about the most during the day? What do you think about when you daydream? What do you spend your money on? All of your money, if you could. Those things are probably the things that are the idols in your life. Even good things that God has given to us can be idols. They don't have to be sinful things. Our family can be an idol. If it draws us into bad decisions, misplaced priorities, and puts God in second place. And by God in second place, I don't simply mean you give up your quiet time. I mean a full-orbed relationship with God, maintaining a strong relationship with Him, but also loving His people, the church, as He has called us to, obeying His commands for our life. It might be our jobs as we pursue more wealth or more prestige from our performance. It might be our physical appetites as we pursue the satisfaction of our natural urges to the extreme and unhealthy ends which God has not intended. Our idol might be a thing or a feeling or an idea. Or idol might be sports, or freedom, or sex, or alcohol, or respect, or power, or knowledge, or even our phones that we carry around in our pockets. What is it in our lives that needs to be cleared away? Perhaps like a bag full of garbage that is stinking our lives up? Or perhaps something that is as giant as a mountain, crushing down our souls, that needs to be dynamited away? God can do it by the power of his word. But the one thing God won't tolerate is playing games. He doesn't want lip service. He wants your life. That is why lastly we see that God's word demands authentic repentance. God's word demands authentic repentance. John calls the people out to be baptized. Now to be clear, this is not Christian baptism. Okay, you find some books and some people that say, Baptists go all the way back to John. Well, it's not the same baptism. Number one, Jesus hasn't come yet. And if you're a good Baptist, you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not the same today. It's something different. John was calling for the people to be baptized as a sign of their repentance before God. But notice verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Just being baptized wasn't enough. John wanted the people to give practical evidence that they had actually repented. He wanted them to show changed lives. And that leads us to consider, first of all, the nature of repentance. The nature of repentance. Let us be clear what repentance is not. It is not simply being sorry for something. It is not simply being sorry for something. Still less is it being sorry you got caught for something. That's not what repentance is. So, frankly, Lance Armstrong was not repentant. In the biblical sense, if you saw the interview, if you read the transcripts, or if you watched it, he, he was not actually sorry for what he did. And in fact, he even said in the interview, it kind of, kind of scared him that he wasn't sorry for what he did. 
That's not true repentance. Repentance as a word means turn, to turn or turning. It involves three things. First of all, it involves conviction. God's Spirit brings a heaviness to your heart as you realize the sinfulness of your actions and its consequences. You realize what you have done is wrong. That leads to, secondly, confession. This is where you actually own up to your sin. You call it sin. You don't just feel bad like, oh man, I think it's sin. You actually declare to God or to someone that you've offended that what you have done is sinful. And finally, having experienced conviction and offered confession, you should work for change. Real repentance results in a changed life because you are turning away from your sin. Now, in thinking about this, you can see where false repentance might occur. You can see where this process might short-circuit. You might experience conviction, but shrug it off and not actually confess your sin. I would venture to say this happens to us more than we would like to believe. God pricks our conscience. He tells us, you know this is wrong. And for a minute, yeah, we know it's wrong, and then we shrug it off because we want to do it anyway. It feels good. It makes us feel safe or, or, or nice or whatever it is. Secondly, though, we might, we might confess our sin and yet make no real change. We might feel conviction. We might confess this is sin, confess it to God, confess it to somebody else, but then actually not pursue change in our life. And we might do that by saying, well, it's difficult for me. We might excuse the behavior by calling it something like a habit or an addiction. And make no mistake, our body, our, our brains and our bodies are hardwired for repetition. They are hardwired for repetitive and habitual behavior. But that just means we have to work harder at change. It's not an excuse not to change before God. Sin is sin and we must flee it. We are still culpable for our actions. Furthermore, we need to understand that repentance doesn't save a person. Listen carefully to this and do not misunderstand. Repentance does not save a person. We can say that there is no we can say that there is no forgiveness, no salvation without repentance. However, repentance does not have the power to take away our sin. Only God has the power to take away our sin, and he has displayed that power through his son, Jesus Christ. This is why the church has always said that salvation comes from repentance and faith. Because to turn away from your sin means you need to turn towards something else. You need a savior from that sin, and that savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his saving work, you will not only find the power of God to forgive your sin, but also to cleanse you of your sin and to bring freedom from your sin. God, in his grace and his mercy through Christ, deals completely with our sin. And so again, we say there is no salvation apart from repentance, but repentance alone doesn't bring salvation. Furthermore, only those who are saved can in the end truly experience real repentance because only in Christ will we find the ability to change. Not just our behavior, not just the externals, but actually our hearts. In Christ, we not only overcome our sin, we lose our taste for our sin. That's the nature of true repentance. We also want to see now, finally, some examples of the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. 
This is the drum that John is banging in his preaching over and over and over again. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just come out to me for a dunk that's not going to do you any good. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Display in your life practically the reality that God has forgiven you and seek to change your ways by his grace. Years ago, back in 1986... The year after I was baptized, there was a terrible story that came out that highlights the significance of this. The FBI were tracking a man who had committed several uh, bank jobs and had knocked over some armored cars. It ultimately resulted in the bloodiest shootouts, one of the bloodiest shootouts in Bureau history. They were looking for a man named William Matix. The terrible thing is that Matex, just a month before he was caught, was featured in a Christian magazine called Christian Home Life where he was presented as the loving, godly husband and father in his family. He was a self-professed Christian who gave his testimony at the Baptist church often where he was a member. Yet all the while he's pulling off these bank jobs, knocking over these armored cars. Here's an example of false repentance. Admittedly, that's a pretty extreme example. But the reality of it is often far closer to home than we like to think. It might be seen in the pastor or the deacon who has an affair. It might simply be seen in the man who goes off to work and is lazy, in effect, stealing from his company. It might be the person who harbors anger and bitterness towards others or enjoys their social cliques so much that even at church they won't interact with the people around them or get to know them unless they are forced to. They would rather just hang out with their friends. It might be the person who looks at others with condescension and contempt because they don't hold their particular views on some issue that ultimately is not of any significance or importance. It might be the one likes the security of salvation that comes from believing in Christ, but they don't want anything to ha- they don't want anything to do with the sacrifices necessary to lovingly engage with the community of Christ. The, the, the list is endless. For the human heart is endless in providing opportunities for sin for ways that we can betray our confession of faith in Christ. The crowds asked John, what shall we do when he says, be baptized as a sign of your repentance and bear fruit in keeping with repentance? He answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also come to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. The amazing thing about this passage is that all three groups in this passage hated each other. They all hated each other. You first have the crowds. These are the everyday Jewish people of the day. You have the tax collectors. They were seen as Jewish sellouts. They were Jews who collected taxes for the Romans and could charge above and beyond what Rome wanted for themselves. And they often cheated the people. The soldiers were, of course, Romans who lorded their authority over the people, threatened them, and exhorted them whenever they could. And yet, God, through the power of his word, has called some portion of these groups to hear John's message, and they are compelled by it. They aren't just playing games. They know they need God's forgiveness. They know they need to be right with the Almighty. His word has done its work. It has pierced their unbelieving hearts, showing them their sin. They have felt conviction. They have confessed it through baptism by John, and now they want to change. And notice what John says to each of them. He says there's no need to change what you actually do as a profession. 
Don't stop being a tax collector. Don't stop being a soldier. Just do those things. Live according to God's ways, not the culture's ways that you see around you. Notice to the everyday Jew, he doesn't say, if you have so much clothing and so much food that you have extra, then give some away. It's not what he says, does he? Two tunics. Tunics is basically underwear. It's the stuff you wore under the big flowing robes that we always see in the movies. Two pair doesn't seem like a lot to me. My wife would probably agree double. What does he say? You got one? Give one away. He doesn't even say if you have extra food or two portions of food. He just says if you have food, you have more than the guy who has nothing. So give some to him. What does he say to the tax collector? Tells the tax collector, don't leverage your position to line your own pockets. Collect what you're authorized to collect and no more. To the soldiers, he says, don't terrorize people. Do what you're supposed to do. Protect people. In other words, all of this is something deeper than simply telling them, go to church more and go pray more. He's telling them, let the very core of your being, your ethics, may that be changed according to God's word. And ultimately, that's the only way it's going to be changed. The desire for change was provoked by the word of God and the enablement, the power for change comes by the word of God. For that is how God works in the world and in our lives. He sends his word and his spirit to cause us to be changed. Having heard John's call to repentance, the most basic question to ask is this, where are we today? John is seeking to get the people ready for Christ's coming. Christ has already come. We're on the other side of Christ's coming. We've seen the cross where he's atoned for sin. We've seen his resurrection as he takes his rightful place as Lord over all things. Now, what is our response to these things? How much more should it be one of genuine repentance? It's no surprise that the great gospel reformer Martin Luther began his work calling for a reform in the church with these words. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What is Luther saying there? He's saying repentance is a lifestyle. It's not an event. It's it's not what gets you into the kingdom. It is how you exist in the kingdom. It is by exposing yourself to the power of God's word, feeling conviction for your sin, confessing that sin, and then going to God to find change from your sin. Every day, just like this morning, By his powerful redeeming word, God is calling us to repent. He's calling us to forsake the vain hope that we have in things that are ultimately powerless to save us, to give up the idols in our life, and to actually turn towards Christ in faith. He is calling us to respond to the conviction that we feel because of our sin, not just by being sorry, but actually turning away from those things and finding new life in Christ. For it's in, putting, it's in putting our faith in him that we will not only find forgiveness and life with God, but a transformed life. So this morning, don't be like the vipers who live amongst the brush and the trash. But when judgment is threatened, when it is set on fire, they scurry away seeking to save themselves, but still go away as snakes. Now, be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Feel the weight of our sin, but turn and look at the grace offered to us in Christ, trusting in him for forgiveness and our lives and our hearts to be changed. May we heed 
an even greater call than John's to repent this morning. Father, we are thankful for your word and its its power in our lives, even this morning, to bring about change, change in our thinking and our loving, God, and just how we go about our lives. Father, we pray that if we haven't done so before, we would see that we have nothing but Christ in this life and in the next. Father, he is our redeemer from all of our sin, its consequences, its power. Father, all that we have before you is Christ. Therefore, may we love him and cherish him, have faith in him, and follow him all of our days. We ask it for his sake. Amen.